Good morning, everybody. Welcome to week 10. Week 10, we are going to take on our biggest challenge yet, the brain. What does it mean when we start tracking the causes of behavior to the brain? How does it affect blame? How does it affect culpability? How does it affect the courts? How does it affect the way in which we think about the world? It's a psychological debate. It's a philosophical debate. But let's have fun. I was thinking the other day about, um, you know, your body and everything, because it is amazing, isn't it, how it works. Oh, yeah, yeah. Does the brain control you, or are you controlling the brain? I don't know if I'm in charge of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Nor do I, There's Carl. a surprise. Nor do I, Carl. No, do, do you know what I mean, though, by that? Does well, the brain control you, or do well, you control when, the brain? Well, when you, like, don't you ever sort of think sometimes? Say if you're making... But you I, are I was the making, brain. No, no, but I was making a shopping list, right? Going, right, I need some uh, rice, uh, kidney beans, uh, and I thought I had everything, and I sort of was rolling up the paper, and then then something went, oh, an onion. Your so brain did Something that. went, an onion, was yeah. it Suzanne? No, well, my brain, my brain sort of went, you forgot something. Yeah. I, I didn't think I'd forgot. I was no, no, you that. are your brain. No, no, <laughs> but don't you understand, the brain, my brain was in, I was in control of my brain. <laughs> When I was writing down rice and kidney beans. But you're not in charge of the onion. That's another part of the brain that's in charge of the onion. <laughs> the onion, the onion sector. Yeah. No, but I put the paper away, put in my coat, I'm ready to go. Ready but to then, go get the rice. Yes, yes, but your onion lobe kicked in. <laughs> what, so you, you put the paper in your pocket, you got the coat on, and then you just suddenly hear then from it, it was just like, it was onion. like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not even thinking about that shopping list. It's in my pocket, I'm thinking, do I need my gloves, it's cold out. Yeah. And suddenly, onion. And it was like, oh yeah, onion, yeah, I had to get the paper out. So what I'm saying is, who's, in, who's in charge? The brain, the brain, the mind, the brain is the... What are you doing but who's in charge? That's just, you forgot, you forgot the onion and then you remembered the onion. You must have forgotten things in the past. No, but not, not like that, not where, like, it just made me think, that was weird, who, who reminded me of that? You did! <laughs> yeah, but I'm not... <laughs> no, you are your brain. It's not like there's you, then there's a brain, then there's an extra one looking down at it, about, oh, the, the, you know, the, the, the meta-brain, the thing above it. No, but your brain... Your, how does your brain work? <laughs> you give it information, don't you? Well, it takes... Do you mean you give it information? Well, it's if doing I, it, if I it? sat in a room with nothing, not feeding it anything, it wouldn't know anything. No, but it, it, it's this thing but that then, there's two yous. It's this thing that there's... There's, there's Carl this, and Carl's brain. Yeah, there's, there's, not, there's not a duality in this. If, 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 you go, if you go, come on, come on, now think. That's the brain saying that to itself. It's it, it's not. There's not two people in there having an argument. Coming, come on, brain, and the brain's going. Oh, don't you start? I was thinking then. And the other thing's going. Brain, onion, and the brain goes. Carl, onion. You are your brain. If you are anything, you are you are your mind, your brain, your collection of memories, your personality. You're not what you look like. Does that answer your question, Carl? 
Uh, what did you think out then? You were thinking of a tortoise on a the skateboard then when I did that last <laughs> sentence, weren't you? <laughs> We've got to a point in science now that you can change a head. Right? No, well, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. It, it was a programme on... It was done in the 50s or 60s where they stuck a, a monkey's brain on a stick and had it wired up and it still worked, right? Right, OK. And that was in, like, the 60s or Right, whatever. OK. Well, so, to, ch- well to, to say to change a head makes no sense at all. Because Just, if you put a, a, a different head on a different body, you're changing the body. Yeah, I know. Well, that's what I'm about to say to you, though. What? That's what I'm saying. That I'd be more confident if I had someone else's body. Because if anyone dissed it, I can go, oh, no, it's bad, isn't it? But it's what not are you mine. talking about? Well, it's, it's like, say... Um, As opposed to someone else's head? Yeah. Well, what it wouldn't be me, would it? The head is me. Well, of course it is. That's yeah, what I mean. Yeah, so, what do you mean? Me. You'd be happier having someone else's body. What than your own? What I mean is, say if um, you're wandering about uh, for some for some reason, there's an incident. You have to take your top off and that, and everyone's looking at you, right? And you're a bit sort of, you know, you haven't got the muscles and that, you haven't got the six pack, right? Uh, which isn't that nice anyway. I don't know why that's become a nice thing. Really, seeing the insides of you. You might as well. <laughs> I mean, I know not. I came up with the see-through skin idea, but it's it's a bit weird, isn't it? You can see stuff. No, no, it's the muscle in front of the. No, it's not. Sometimes it is. You it's, can not see the, like it's not the outline of your. No, organs. you can't see tubes. You can see tubes and veins and stuff. We well, can see veins. Yeah, well, I don't want to see that. That's why we've got skin over it. Well, what stop I mean. looking at naked men, then. Well, no, but sometimes lo- you can't help it because it's been hot, and it's, like you say, there's people walking about with vests on, and that. So anyway, what I'm saying is, say if some incident happened, I'm walking about with my top off. Right. Girls are laughing at me, right? Why? Don't know, they might. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, go on. They wouldn't look at your body, they'd all look at your head. So so what I mean is... Yeah. Rewind that, right, and imagine all that happens again, but I've I've got someone else's body. Right. Whose body? Uh, just some fella who's died and I, and my body was injured and they said, we've got a new body in. You right. can have it. We'll yeah. stick your head on it. Yes. Yeah. Now, say if... They're if, laughing at you. Uh, They're they laughing, laughing at the body. They're laughing yeah. at the body. Yeah. But at least I'd be able to sort of go, I know it's a mess, but it's not mine. At least I don't have to claim ownership. So, so all of this extraordinary technology that can make a head, put one head on another person's body so you can go, ah, it's not my body. No, no. But, and but it's not your own. I'm not being funny though. So if you have a body transplant, right, and you're there, you're at home, yeah. naked, you look down, yeah. lovely penis and a set of testicles. Yeah. Right. What do you do with them? What do you mean? What am I doing with them? Well, do you like them? Well, you wouldn't. You wouldn't mess about with them as much as if they were your own. <laughs> If you did mess about with them, would you feel guilty that you were messing about with another man's testicles and penis? And it's the full body? Yeah. No, because they're not my hands either. (laughs) You're a genius! You're a fucking genius! So what you're doing is watching someone else wank. Yeah. always like to start this lecture with that clip from Carl Pilkington. Now, Carl Pilkington was kind of, if you will, the kind of the village idiot uh, to our to our Ricky Gervais in the kind of the Ricky Gervais show. And if those of you don't know, he's 
Ricky Gervais is, in my opinion, the funniest comedian ever. Um, not many people find him that funny, but I find him immensely funny. Um, and, and they had this show and they would kind of, you know, talk, Carl Pil talk to Carl Pilkington and they would, they would kind of prod him a little bit and, and pretty routinely he would say something very stupid. Um, and and when, they, when they walked him through and they kind of talked to him about it, in that sense, you could see the idea, you know, to them, he was being very stupid. But to me, Carl Pilkington is talking about something that is absolutely fundamental to human existence. And it is the fact that sometimes your brain is in control of you and sometimes you are in control of your brain. Now, a lot of people don't like that thought. A lot of people don't like this idea almost of a, of a duality or a dualism between your brain and yourself. They view you are one and the same. You know, the brain creates conscious experience and, you know, you know, the brain is thus you. That is true, but the brain is in and of itself an independent organism, which is reacting to the environment, you know, bottom-up processing. It's reacting to the environment in its own way. And you, at best, can exert top-down control on the brain. So, you know, you can try and make your brain do what you want it to do, but also, to a degree, your brain is going to do what it wants. Your brain changes behaviour when it's primed, when it's subconsciously primed with colours or emotions or feelings or words, right? Your brain changes the way you behave when it's, you know, when it's hungered, when it's hungry or when you're hot or when you're tired. When you're tired, you don't think to yourself, I'm going to be grouchier. Your brain is operating in such a state that it makes you grouchier, right? It's, it's this dualism. Or a better example yet, you know, when someone has you know, depression or, a, a, you know, or another, you know, mental illness, um, you know, the, their brain is processing the world in a certain way. And it's almost, you know, creating thoughts and interpretations that are not what the conscious mind would want. And, you know, sometimes, you know, some of the best, you know, cognitive behavioral therapies and things like that are around training the, the, the person to be able to step in and stop their brain. I had this really, um, I had a client once who was a, a professional soccer player. And he, and he said to me, he said, you know, I have this real issue when I play. And it's, you know, I get in these, these negative cycles whenever I miss a pass. I get in these negative cycles about kind of how bad I'm playing and how bad the game's going and how, you know, I'm really crap at, at soccer and stuff. And it wasn't him, it was, his, it, was, it was the way in which his brain was basically becoming this kind of runaway train of negativity. And what I kind of talked to him about it and got him to try and do when he was playing is I said, so every time you miss a pass, before allowing your brain to go on this runaway train, step in and think about the part, the last pass that you made. So think about a positive situation before your brain goes away down this negative route. Right? And, and it might sound like a really, really benign example, but it's this concept that we are often at war with our brains. We are often at war with the way our brains react, with the way our brains interpret, with the way our brains think. And then it's, a, it's actually a Buddhist concept that the greatest source of suffering is the self and it's the conscious self. And the, the awareness and existence of, of human thought is the, is the source of, of human drama. And, and to be honest, I almost believe it. I, I, my, my personal view is that the, you know, almost the, the, the hardest thing we can do as humans is understand when our brain is taking over our thoughts and that we need to step in and control it. You know, it happens, it happens in everyday, everyday um, examples, you know, in, in relationships, in, in, in the workplace, all this kind of stuff. But all of the time, our brain is this little 
pro autonomous processor and we need to know when to step in. Um, so I don't think that as a, as a scientific concept upsets too many people. But the question becomes, what about when the autonomous processes of the brain are criminal, right? When they, they support or justify or lead to criminal acts. And better yet, or, or to make it more complicated, if you will, not better yet, what about when we track the origins of this? So, so we'll call it a deviation or an abnormality in the brain. We track these deviations and abnormalities, the sources of them, all the way back to, you know, not just your early environment, not the last few years, not your upbringing, while you were still in the womb, and even earlier than that. How does that affect this kind of, this, this sense of causality, control, and culpability? It's a really tough question. Now, there are actually quite a few areas that are kind of getting into this, but one of the ones that's most developed, and I think is the best example of this idea for this lecture is not to, to, it's not it's not the violence one because violence is very much you know a a uh, environment creates a, a violent reaction in the brain and because of the emotion you're not processing well enough to be able to control it and you know we talked about that in the Elliot Turner case the the world of 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 pedophilic interest in children has really dig, dig, dig dug into this area because the question they're asking is are people born with brains that are that have a proclivity to be sexually interested in children and then does that manifest in this duality of the conscious person fighting the impulses and urges of his brain and one of the most there's a really famous case about this and I'll put the link down below for a man who's, uh, the, the title of the article is, you know, the man, a man whose brain tumour made him a paedophile, or words to that effect. And it was a case where this individual, living his normal life, married, had kids, started developing a very intense sexual interest in children. Eventually got a brain scan. After, I think he was actually sentenced, got a brain scan. And they found he had a very large tumour, removed the tumour, and the interest went away. About five years later, the interest came back went back to the doctors, had another brain scan, and the tumour had regrown. And it showed you almost this really clear case of, you know, morphological changes in the brain led to this very deviant, uh, criminal and abhorrent sexual interest in children. So what we're going to do, and I'm actually going to defer most of the lecturing this week over to a far more experienced and excellent colleague, James Cantor out of Canada. And he's going to talk us through kind of the biological quest to understand why a paedophile's brain is interested in children and where the causality of that is and what it means for these big questions of, of who's to blame, can we treat it, can we cure it, and how do we deal with it? So with that, I'm going to defer the floor and I'll see you on the other side. Enjoy. Somehow after introductions like that, I should feel like I always should just call it a day and go home. It can go nowhere but down from here. Uh, now, the, uh, uh, I'd like to talk today, of course, about the uh, uh, great research that uh, my colleagues and I have been doing now for uh, almost 10 years, which is, I think, also a scary thing to be able to say, uh, here in Toronto at, uh, at CAMH. Now, 
Studying the brain is one of those uh, uh, topics for which everybody immediately recognizes good. I'm glad somebody's working on this because ultimately this might be, uh, uh, yield us some permanent solutions. But it's really, really tough to read. I mean, brain anatomy, anybody remember it? I mean, I also have to study the names of the, uh, to be able to pronounce the different parts that, uh, as, we're, as we're going through. So what I hope to be able to do today is to kind of translate some uh, the more technical aspects and to emphasize what all of this really means. What all of the data that we're gathering means for uh, what we know about pedophiles, what we know about the theory behind sexual offending, how we assess them, and how ultimately we can, uh, uh, we can uh, address the problems in society. Now, I think the reason that a lot of people are interested in the brain philosophically and how it relates to sexual uh, offending is because of what I call the big questions. Whenever anybody asks, is it in the brain? Really what people are asking is, can we change it? We used to ask a lot, is it in the genes? More or less for the same question. Well, if it's in the genes, then maybe we can't change it. We have the same idea. If it's in the brain, well, the brain doesn't change very much. Maybe we can't change it. People also often start to believe, well, if it's in the brain, doesn't that mean that the people aren't responsible for their behavior? They can't control it. If they were born with it, well, that has followed, uh, uh, following from that are all kinds of ethical implications and legal implications. So people become very anxious about what the results are, mostly because they're afraid that it's going to interfere with uh, political beliefs that they hold. Yet, because the, uh, the language of brain research is so complicated and the statistics are so hideously complicated, nobody's really sure exactly what the research is showing about the role of the brain in pedophilia and sex offending. So these are the questions that, uh, that I kind of want to hit today after reviewing what we do know about the, uh, about the brain itself. Now, the role, I usually start with a slide that says, uh, power corrupts. PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. <laughs> so when something goes wrong, think of that. Okay, modern sexology usually can be uh, tracked back to uh, this man, uh, uh, who was Austrian, Richard von Kraft Ebbing. Uh, it was started by a book that he published, Psychopathia Sexualis, which was the first attempt to start to uh, catalog the many different types of, uh, of, sexual, of sexual peculiarities uh, of the day. And even though we often think of brain research as very modern, and most of us are accustomed to thinking about uh, uh, sex offending uh, or pedophilia being something that's learned, something that developed from something that went wrong in the person's uh, early environment, really at the very founding of sexology was the idea that pedophilia and the other uh, uh, paraphilias were actually the result of the brain. But in the 1800s, uh, neither uh, Kraft Ebbing nor any of his uh, contemporaries had the technology really to follow up on the idea. So the idea just kind of uh, uh, was very easily subsumed, well, I shouldn't say subsumed under, but instead was overtaken by Freudian ideas at the time, which did relate whatever was going on in, uh, uh, in a person's life and their behaviors to their early experiences. Over the course of the 20th century, however, there were, following, uh, uh, especially following the Kinsey studies and Masters and Johnson's uh, work, very large-scale studies. Every uh, offender who went through a correctional system automatically got a, a battery of tests, including, uh, IQ test, uh, including IQ testing. Now, IQ testing was uh, interesting. You can almost think of it as a uh, uh, blood pressure test of the brain. It doesn't tell you exactly, it, doesn't tell, uh, it gives you a general idea of how healthy the brain might be. 
if you have a group of people who as a whole have low IQ? Well, then there might be some, uh, then you have the first, uh, uh, first uh, reason to believe that there might be an involvement of the brain directly. Now, unfortunately, the IQ studies that have gathered over the course of the 20th century were highly contradictory. So the first thing that uh, we did, everybody say, meta-analysis. So we, uh, there were many different papers using uh, sometimes enormous samples testing the, IQ, uh, testing the IQs of sex offenders, including offenders against children, offenders against adults, non-sexual offenders, and then I grouped together all of the other studies that had uh, samples of people who committed no offenses and uh, people who had uh, a mishmash of, uh, of offenses. And sure enough, uh, an average IQ, I put the, uh, the gray line uh, across, is 100. That's the population baseline average, uh, average IQ. But the samples uh, of uh, people who committed offenses against children were substantially lower. And this is now over many tens of thousands of patients. Uh, the ends uh, uh, I have up here are numbers of studies in the meta-analysis rather than the actual sample size. So we did have some reason to, uh, to think that, oh, there's something here going on. The sexual offenders against children, who of course have a large amount of pedophilia in them, have a significantly lower IQ than samples composed of people who committed other types of offenses. And what was interesting is that, of course, different papers use different definitions of what a child is when they talk about offenders against children. To some scientists, it's the victim was 18 or under. Some studies were more, uh, uh, were more rigid. The uh, victim had to be 16 or under or 12 or under, and so on. But if you line up the average IQ of the sample with that definition of child, the lower the age definition of child, the lower the IQ in that sample. In other words, the more pedophilic the sample, the lower IQ in the sample. Again, that was a clue that there's something going on. But we're not quite sure what it is yet. It could be that low IQ offenders are more likely to get arrested. Although, we, can, uh, we get to compare this, uh, also get to compare the offenders against children with offenders against adults who are also caught, and we still see the difference. Uh, the next large uh, set of studies were uh, using CT studies. Uh, if you remember, CTs were what MRIs used to be. Uh, and th uh, in those days, there were two different theories being, uh, being expressed. Uh, this is your brain. This is your brain in your head. So it's in, in smaller rooms, I usually like to stand in front of the projector, so the big brain kind of... <laughs> now, there were two theories going on at the time. I called them, or nicknamed them, the frontal lobe theorists and the temporal lobe theorists. And these two groups of, uh, of scientists were debating for, uh, for many years. Uh, this yellow area uh, really depicts the main part of the frontal part of the brain. Uh, and the reason that people were uh, suspecting that is that's the part of the brain that's associated with uh, inhibition or, in brain injury, disinhibition, self-control. Uh, people with injuries in this part of the brain lose the ability to control their own behavior. People who are malformed or, uh, or have less formed brain in this area of the brain are very impulsive. So there are some people who believe that sex offenses were the result of impulsivity and theorize, therefore, that it's this area of the brain that we would find differences in. Uh, personally, I never bought the frontal lobe theory. Sex offenders are not particularly impulsive. There exist, for example, many pedophiles who are uh, completely able never to offend. They're genuinely pedophilic, but if anything, they show a greater ability to inhibit their own behavior. Then there was the other group uh, that I call the temporal lobe theorists. That's the temporal lobe of the brain, and it's kind of inside the temporal lobes that are what's called, remember the four Fs? 
They were the four instinctual behaviors in humans. Uh, fleeing, fighting, feeding, <laughs> and fornicating. So really, uh, uh, if I had any, uh, any theory of my own, I was probably a temporal lobe theorist. That's where the sexual parts of the brain are. To me, it made more sense that that's where, uh, some, uh, if something went wrong, that would be where it was. But I was essentially atheistic about it. Sorry, agnostic about it. Now, uh, there are large uh, neuropsychological batteries that were also going on at the time, and this was the basis of a lot of the debate between the temporal lobe theorists and the frontal lobe theorists. Uh, they uh, uh, tested many different types of sex offenders, but basically found nothing specific, nothing that replicated. Even from the same set of researchers, uh, different sets of findings would emerge in, uh, in different papers. So there's really nothing generalizable using those particular neuropsychological tests. Uh, but as uh, time advanced, uh, uh, the researchers developed other kinds of tests which seemed to uh, focus in more specifically on different parts of the brain. So usually by testing uh, different, uh, by giving a battery of these tests, we would come up with a profile. And that neuropsychological profile would give us an idea of how well different, more specific areas of the brain were functioning. So for example, we could test other, uh, other t uh, we could give a person a test that taps into the frontal lobe part, where we're testing a person's ability to inhibit or not inhibit. Unfortunately, there was nothing very consistent in these uh, studies either. Most of them found non-significant results. Sometimes in large samples we got, large, uh, 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 got significant effects, but really anywhere in the brain. So overall, considered together, we found the same thing. Nothing specific except some indication of there being some global, general, the whole thing just isn't working right, but nothing very specific. We couldn't find a pedophilia center, or they couldn't find a pedophilia center. Now, the early brain uh, imaging, as I said, was a series of CT studies, but got pretty much the same problem. The early CT studies didn't have the resolution, uh, uh, the physical uh, photography, to be able to capture the brain. Uh, here on the uh, left is a, a contemporary CT scan where we have a nice, pretty clear picture where we can pick out some of the major structures of the brain. On the other side is the kind of CT scans that were available then. They couldn't really tell anything other than saying that those large holes, they're called ventricles, those large uh, C-shaped dark spots in the middle, were larger. Which essentially, and those are actually fluid, that center part. That's how uh, a lot of the uh, uh, inner workings of the brain uh, that need to circulate in fluid circulate. Uh, they were larger, meaning the rest of the brain was smaller. So we have the same story. We have just kind of a diffuse, nonspecific, something's wrong, but we can't yet see what. So that then started uh, the series of studies that I was able to do uh, uh, at CAMH, looking very, very indirectly at the brain. Now, the first thing that we wanted to do, again, was to replicate the basic uh, IQ finding. Now, uh, at CAMH, we test uh, between 250 and 300 sex offenders per year. The majority of them are, uh, are sex offenders against, uh, against children. Uh, and it's a standard part of our assessment to include uh, neuropsychological testing, including IQ testing because, of course, that gives us an objective means of, uh, of knowing what kinds of uh, treatment groups to assign a person to. Uh, we receive, as you might guess, very many low IQ people, and we uh, put them in treatment groups that are lighter on, for example, reading materials or very, very com uh, complicated materials. Now, in our lab, of course, we also do philometry, which let me divide the groups according to the people who responded the most to pictures depicting children, stimuli depicting pubescent age children, roughly ages uh, 11 to 14, uh, versus, we call them the teleophiles, 
people who are sexually most interested in adults. So when I divide them uh, according to their phallometric results, I get the same very dramatic differences in IQ. The, uh, the uh, teleophiles, again, not significantly different from the population average of 100. The pedophiles, however, were below 90. That's not, an IQ of 90 is not something where you would notice the person on the street that they're unu uh, particularly unusual, not very bright, but you wouldn't say that this person is, that there's anything wrong with the person. But when you find the same thing in large groups of samples and you find something systematic from teleophilia to hebophilia to pedophilia, again, we're starting to see a pattern. We're not sure what it means. We're only t testing the person, of course, often years after the offenses themselves. And we're still not sure, well, maybe it's the pedophiles getting caught that are more likely to appear in the samples and therefore interfere with, that, uh, with our results. But I got the same thing with memory testing. I can imagine that a low IQ person is more, uh, uh, more likely to get apprehended by the police. It's a little bit harder to see how verbal memory might have that same, uh, uh, same pattern. But the pedophiles had the lowest memory scores. Same thing with visual memory, uh, uh, visual spatial memory scores, a very consistent pattern. Then it started getting interesting. Er. Really, the question, is this in the brain? Well, when did it happen? Is this a brain injury? Is it something that uh, developed along the course of life? Or is it something, the ultimate question, that was present since birth? Now, I can only test a person after they committed their offenses and after they come to the laboratory and are, uh, and are assessed. But there are some questions like this one. Just school age. Yeah, yeah, did they fail grades? Were they left back? Or uh, contemporarily, nobody's left back anymore. Uh, they're instead assigned to special education classes, so I combined everybody into one sample. But the same pattern. In childhood, now predating the offenses, at least in the great majority of our offenders. Same pattern uh, uh, where we had uh, uh, roughly 60 to 70% of them were assigned to special education or, uh, uh, groups or, uh, uh, or failed a class. 70%. The baseline average is 2%. Something is going on and it was present before they committed their offenses. It wasn't the result of the offenses, which actually for a scientific pause, is interesting. Usually, in correlational data, you can't say what was cause and what was effect. But because I know this happened before the offenses, I know causality could not have been the other way. I still don't know if this is cause. They could both be caused by the same thing. If something's wrong in the brain, it could be causing both pedophilia and be causing the propensity to fail a grade or to need special education uh, uh, classes. We asked about head injuries. Again, these were historical head injuries and they predominantly preceded the, uh, the actual commission of the offenses. We found something here we, uh, we weren't expecting. Although there was a significant and powerful association between having had a head injury and a head injury severe enough to cause uh, unconsciousness and whether the person was pedophilic. But only if the head injury occurred before age 13. There was no association between whether the person had head injuries essentially after the onset of puberty. So again, because I can ask questions back in time, I can now say whatever was in the brain, all right, it was before high school graduation, now I can say it was before puberty. Whatever happened was there early on. Physical height. They're shorter. 
pedophiles are physically short, about two and a half centimeters, which is roughly double the effect you would get if a woman smokes while she's pregnant with the kid. Whatever's going on is affecting the whole body, not just the brain. And then, perhaps most importantly on the whole thing, was handedness. Now, handedness is not a particularly obvious thing to want to ask about sex offenders. Who cares? I mean, we can imagine, you know, is it left-handed pedophiles, they run the wrong, wrong way to escape the police and hit a wall. <laughs> but what's scientifically important about handedness is there's only one thing that makes handedness. Brain structure. It's one hemisphere of the brain versus the other hemisphere of the brain being the dominant one. No one controls that. There was, of course, some history, especially in, uh, in Catholic schools, of trying to retrain kids to write with their right hand. That happens, but this is an excess of left-handedness. Nobody ever taught, uh, taught anyone to become left-handed. Anyone who is left-handed was born left-handed. Not only were they, uh, we know that they were born left-handed rather than acquiring it early, because fetuses on sonograms have a preference for what thumb they suck still in the womb. And that thumb, of course, in, adult, in later childhood and then adulthood, is their handedness. The baseline for, uh, for left-handedness in the population is roughly 10%. You know, studies vary a little bit, 8 to 12. It's 30% in the pedophiles. The only other group I could find with that elevated a rate of, uh, uh, of left-handedness outside of gross brain injury are schizophrenics. Something is in the brain and it was there before birth. There's just no other way to explain this. That doesn't rule out the possibility that there are social or more traditionally psychological contributors. There's no proof that demands that they be there, but there is no psychosocial way to explain height or handedness. Okay, so to sum up, uh, we have uh, lower IQs, lower scores on the memory tests, uh, uh, increased rates of grade failure, physical shortness or lesser stature, they call it in that literature, uh, and less right-handedness. So altogether, we have pretty consistent results so long as you have a large enough sample uh, to detect the effect, you have a homogeneous group, a homogeneous group of, uh, of people, so they're purely pedophilic rather than a mix of pedophilic and non-pedophilic offenders, and in our case, we're able to use phallometric data in order to jump over people's self-report. So that then was the justification, and we got yet a, on one hand, I want to say large grant. On the other hand, I also like pointing out that the cost of the brain research that I'm about to show you was the same amount of money it takes to put one person in jail. Okay, now this is, of course, where it becomes much more specifically relevant to the day-to-day -day work that we do. This is, of course, the, uh, the famous phallometric chair. This is the one in the, uh, in the Kurt Freund phallometric laboratory. So brain research, everybody wants to know, can we replace that with this? Which is a very, very exciting prospect. Okay, there have been only three, there are three teams doing this work. Uh, there's my group here in Toronto and uh, two teams in, uh, in Germany. And we're coming out with, I'll hold that part, and we're coming out with uh, slightly different results. Now, I didn't set this up, but it worked out very nicely that uh, one of these other teams was a group of temporal lobe theorists, and one of them was a group of frontal lobe theorists. So it made a very nice opportunity to see, oh, okay, who's going to win this? <laughs> now, the temporal lobe theorists, 
uh, tested, you know, roughly uh, over a dozen pedophiles plus controls from the community. These were he uh, healthy folks, uh, volunteers essentially. Uh, and they did uh, VBM analysis, which I'll talk more about uh, later. Because they were looking specifically to find if there were deficits in, uh, in the temporal lobe of the brain, they used what's called a small volume correction. The brain is, of course, enormous, and there are many, many different ways to, uh, to analyze it, and points in the brain to analyze. The statistical folks among you will, of course, immediately start saying, oh, you have this multiple testing problem. Sooner or later, you're going to find something significant. The way to avoid that, or at least to minimize that in, uh, in brain research, is to focus specifically on the areas of the brain you're interested in. So the temporal lobe uh, theorists focused on the temporal lobe uh, of the brain, and were indeed able to find in certain uh, parts of the brain that there were less dense uh, areas of less dense gray matter. Fine. However, the frontal lobe theorists did exactly the same thing. They compared a relatively small group of, uh, of pedophiles, contrasting them with uh, uh, regular healthy controls from the community, and used a small volume correction because they were focusing specifically on the frontal lobe of the brain, and found that there were less dense areas in gray matter in the frontal lobe of the brain. Remember that famous uh, uh, story about the uh, blind monks and the elephant? So the monks who were examining the tail of the brain would feel the tail and it's kind of fluffy. Oh, oh, a, a, an elephant is much like a, a broom. And the, the guy at the side was feeling up and it's, it's large. Oh, yes, okay, elephants must be much like a wall. But if you step back and take all of the independent observations as one big, uh, uh, one large set of findings, that's when you get to perceive the elephant. Unfortunately, when we look only at individual parts of the brain, we're only feeling around in either finding or not finding the specific thing we're looking for instead of getting the big picture. Now, because I was uh, well-supported, I hope somebody's here from CAHR, uh, because I had the grant funding, I could uh, uh, gather a much larger sample. Uh, we, uh, I what, didn't have to focus on any particular part of the brain. Every point in the brain had an even uh, opportunity to come out as the significant point in the brain. Now, I can only do that because I was able to collect a, a relatively large sample, and for MRI research, they thought I was crazy for testing this many, but in retrospect, I, uh, I'm glad I did. Okay, so this is the part that I want to talk about in, uh, in a little more detail. Now, there's more than one way to decide who's genuinely pedophilic and who's not pedophilic, and people debate over the best way to analyze the brain and to decide who's in, uh, in which group. Uh, today, uh, we only have time to go over this particular set of results, but they matched up pretty well. So we decided who was and was not pedophilic. If they said that they were pedophilic, we believed them. Uh, and if they didn't say they were pedophilic but had a series of offenses against kids, you were in the group anyway. Which brings me to uh, VBM, which, stands for, which is a method of analyzing brain scan uh, images, uh, and it stands for voxel-based morphology, which of course brings the natural question, what's a voxel? <laughs> now, if you look at a television screen, you're, or computer screen for that matter, you remember what a pixel is. It's one of those little points of light. A voxel is the same thing, but for the brain in three dimensions, because I have a three-dimensional image of the brain. So it's a volumetric pixel. But the basic idea is the same. It's a particular point in the brain, and when we have two groups, the computer then compares the density of these two points, then the next two points, then the next two points. And when you line up all of those, the computer then can recreate the entire thing into one large three-dimensional uh, image. Uh, so this is what we did. I'm going backwards. 
I can't blame this one, I guess, on PowerPoint. Okay, so again, uh, the uh, uh, subjects themselves were recruited from the uh, Kurt Freund Laboratory, where we have large amounts of them. Uh, we offered them, I think it was uh, uh, about $150 to just sit in a noisy scanner and relax. Uh, the controls, however, were not regular controls uh, recruited from the community. Uh, because I never knew, uh, we still had this uh, question about is disinhibition related. So I wanted to compare offenders against offenders. So just the propensity to, commit, uh, to break a law wouldn't be what I found. So rather than, compare the, uh, uh, rather than compare the pedophiles to healthy controls from the community, I compared who were predominantly sex offenders with people who committed non-sexual crimes. So theoretically, the propensity to commit any offense would be taken out of the equation. Uh, now, they turned out to match very well in terms of uh, IQ uh, and everything else. Uh, except for alcohol. However, it was the non-sexual offenders who drank more. Now, since I'm pretty convinced that alcohol does not increase brain growth, <laughs> I thought I was pretty safe to continue with the analysis. But that's what I found, and I panicked. Usually, a picture of the brain and the, uh, the parts that are different between your two groups light up in bright colors, or we make the computers light them up in bright colors, and I just get this gray blob. Panicked. I absolutely panicked. I got nothing that looked like anything in the frontal lobe or in the temporal lobe. But what I got was something that none of us was, uh, was expecting. It was inside a different layer of the brain altogether. Uh, now, the, uh, uh, the turquoise part, if you imagine again the person stand, I guess I should stand that way. Okay, this way. So what's shown up in teal is really just the parts of the brain in the, uh, uh, in the left hemisphere and that kind of magenta color plus that extra blob showed up in the right hemisphere. Uh, so the two colors just make it uh, uh, easier to, uh, to see. Now, this part doesn't always work. Ah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you have no idea how long I've been waiting to hear that. It's only my students who know how hideously complicated it is to get the bloody thing to do that. Okay, so we're now looking at the brain as if he's lying on the back uh, staring at the ceiling, and you can see those two very well-formed C-shaped areas. Now, all of this is in the white matter of the brain. Now, the white matter, you might remember, is the connective tissue. It's not the cell bodies. You remember that, you know, the neuron has the cell body and then it has that axon, that tail that connects it to the next neuron. Well, the brain has that in layers. The outer part of the brain is mo uh, the large chunk of its gray matter, and then all that cabling goes underneath it to connect it to the various areas, and part of it, of course, uh, forms the spinal cord. So it was symmetric, so this wasn't random, uh, on, and I had an extra blob on the right side. Uh, now, the names of the areas, in case anybody's uh, curious, I put it uh, in, your, uh, in your slide packet. Everybody say it with me now. The superior occipital frontal fasciculus. <laughs> Try that over uh, penile plethysmography. <laughs> and uh, the extra blob, which was only on uh, one side of the brain, is the arcuate uh, fasciculus. To me, it looks like Marge Simpson. <laughs> kind of with a frying pan. Okay, yeah, you're seeing it now. Now... The arcuate fasciculus in the left hemisphere actually is famous among neuroscientists because it connects Wernicke's area with Broca's area, the two, major, uh, the two major language areas. Nobody has any idea what it does in the right hemisphere. Of course, 
So those are the areas, it's white matter, but how do we interpret that? I mean, what does this actually say about pedophilia and what does it say about brain growth and what does it say about what we can do? Now, I also had absolutely no idea. I was expecting gray matter in one area, gray matter in, an, uh, in another area. I would have been happy with a little blip someplace, but I ended up with an enor two enormous tracts in the brain that were off, that were less dense, that were less well-formed. And it's connective tissue. It doesn't do anything. It's not a verbal area. It's not a nonverbal area. It's not a memory area. It connects areas. I couldn't get my mind around it. And then I had one of those lucky breaks that a scientist gets now and then. And I'm sitting there just out of my mind, not getting this. And then there was another paper that somebody passed me, and it was on my desk. And then all of a sudden, I stepped back, and I saw the whole elephant. Now, the, the paper that I was reading was a, a, a kind of a meta-analysis on its own. Uh, what people were asking, naturally, is what parts of the brain light up when somebody is sexually aroused? What are the sexually relevant parts of the brain? Now, what was interesting in that set of studies is that there is no one sex center of the brain. It's a network of several areas in the brain that seem to operate together. It connects the, uh, in the, uh, uh, the middle frontal gyrus is, again, the person essentially trying not to react while they're in the brain scanner. Uh, the, uh, the area in the uh, middle, the, the insula and opercula, are about sensory integration. The superior and inferior parietal lobules are about movement or about thinking about movement. And the occipital cortex is about vision. So if you put those together, those are just individual aspects of what a person in a brain scanner watching porn is thinking. Yes, the visual areas are lighting up quite strongly. The motor areas are imagining the interacting with whatever the subject of the film is. The sensory integration is, of course, the sensory integration, and the frontal lobe part, the inhibition areas, are the person, don't react, don't react, don't react, just kind of sit still while they're in the scanner watching porn. Now, uh, this uh, uh, blue spaghetti kind of diagram was the result of the other, uh, the result of an anatomical study that was looking at the superior occipital frontal fasciculus. And what that study showed was the different areas of the brain that connect, that network together the sex area are all connected by the superior occipital frontal fasciculus. That can't be a coincidence. I mean, in theory, it could be a coincidence. But really what it looks like is the thing that goes wrong is that there's a problem, not in the sex center, but in the network that all together is responsible for identifying what in the environment is a potentially sexual object. It's almost like there's a literal cross-wiring. Humans, of course, have many social instincts. Uh, uh, they include uh, the four Fs. They include, you know, when you uh, uh, meet a person who's a, an alpha male, you either run away or obey them. Uh, if you're a child, there's natural instincts for, uh, for learning. If you're a parent, there's a natural instinct for parenting. When you meet sexually interesting people, that's a natural uh, social instinct. It's as if, this is a metaphor, not a conclusion, it's as if there's a literal cross-wiring, and when the person perceives a child, the brain, instead of triggering the nurturant instincts, is triggering the sexual instincts. It's cross-wired. At least that's a very, very helpful way so far to look at it that explains the data.
so it looks like in pedophiles, this white matter is underdeveloped, so the correct set of stimuli is not triggering the correct, I'll say correct, is not triggering the correct instincts. Now, so that's what I found, but we still have to puzzle together why did these three teams, me and the two groups of Germans, my group and the two German groups, come up with different results. I found nothing in the frontal lobes. I didn't really find anything in the temporal lobes either, although it's relevant to both the white matter cabling. So really, why didn't the two German teams find the white matter that I did, and why didn't I find the brain areas in gray matter that the two German teams did? I think it's a little bit complicated, but not too bad. The first part is, I think, sample size. Uh, the German samples were smaller than my samples, and it just didn't have the statistical power in order to find the white matter. Uh, the other problem, uh, oh, and for why didn't I find the gray matter, I think was the difference in our control groups. The two German teams used uh, healthy controls from the community, and I used people who committed non-sexual offenders. So, of course, it's quite possible that the German teams weren't finding pedophilia, they were finding the propensity to break the law, which only their pedophilic group had. So if you line it up and you look up the brain literature on antisociality and psychopathy, and look up the literature also, interestingly, on adverse childhood events, which also trigger differences in brain development, all of the findings that were reported by the, uh, uh, by the two German teams are indeed associated either with antisociality or with having suffered adverse uh, circumstances in childhood, uh, neglect, sexual abuse, physical abuse, uh, and so on. And it's only the white matter areas so far that seem to be uh, uh, associated only with pedophilia per se. And I say that very tentatively because those areas are not well studied at all. It's only been in the past, I'll even say three years, that uh, 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 brain scanning technology has advanced to the point where we can take a good close look at white matter differences. So although it hasn't been wi uh, widely studied yet, we're getting there, we're getting there and I think we're going to be uh, seeing several studies of, uh, of that kind soon. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the current project, I don't have the results yet, but in the current project, uh, uh, we're using something called uh, diffusion, tensor, uh, diffusion tensor imaging, DTI, uh, which is a specialized type of brain, uh, brain scan just for white matter. So the bottom line is, yes, it does look like pedophilia is in the brain. We're still disagreeing over where in the brain and what in the brain or why, but it does seem that there's something going uh, there, uh, It's undeniable at this point to say uh, 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 about whether the brain is involved in pedophilia. However, we can't yet use a brain scan like this. We can't look at a person's brain structure and say, this is a pedophilic brain, that's not. The differences aren't large enough. But there's another kind of brain scan called a functional MRI. And for that, instead of looking at uh, the brain as a uh, clear, still image, it kind of takes a, a moving picture of the brain as the brain is reacting. Now, I have to back step from that a piece. It's not actually looking at the brain, it's looking at the brain's blood flow. When brain areas are active, and the largest, uh, the, uh, largest proportion of the blood in the, uh, uh, in the body is actually in the brain and for the brain. That's where most of the uh, uh, blood oxygen goes to. Uh, now, of course, when a brain area is active, it draws more blood, the blood vessels uh, get, uh, get larger, and it turns out that uh, hemoglobin has different magnetic properties before and after it hits oxygen, and the MRI can pick that up. 
because the MRI can pick that up, it can tell us which parts of the brain are more active at any given time. So the way we do an fMRI study is you give a person a task, or in this case, you show them uh, uh, photos depicting uh, either adults or children or neutrals, uh, and subtract point to point to point to point in the brain to see which parts of the brain are active at that given time when they're seeing one type of stimulus versus the other. Now, several uh, uh, researchers have, uh, have, done, uh, have done this already. Uh, the first set, again, mostly from the, uh, from the German teams comparing uh, various types. Uh, and what they found was that pedophiles light up in the same areas of the brain that non-pedophiles do, but they light up at when they see the stimuli that they like. So a pedophile will light up when they see stimuli depicting children, and the non-pedophiles uh, lit up when they saw uh, stimuli depicting uh, adults. Uh, however, those particular studies weren't designed to separate the two groups, which is, uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, there was one other study uh, which looked specifically just at one part. I should say more about that. Uh, the reason that those studies, uh, even though they could separate the two groups, uh, even though they could say that pedophiles responded to children while the non-pedophiles responded to adults but couldn't discriminate the two groups is because there, are, because there are so many points in the brain being examined. And so I have that same statistical problem that I had before. Which point in the brain do I look at as my basis for trying to separate the two groups. And uh, because those two studies were capable of capitalizing on chance, they can't tell us in a statistically rigorous way who should belong to which group according to, uh, according to their results. This study, however, picked one point in the brain. Uh, they wanted the amygdala, which is often considered the center for uh, emotion, especially uh, in humans. Uh, and they did find that in the amygdala, the pedophiles, again, responded only to the stimuli depicting children, and the non-pedophiles uh, responded to the uh, stimuli depicting uh, adults. Uh, the problem with this study is that they used homosexual uh, pedophiles, that is, uh, sex offenders against male children, but their controls were heterosexual. So in theory, I don't know if they were detecting uh, homosexuality or if they were detecting uh, pedophilia. Uh, and that used to be the end of the slide until two weeks ago, uh, where Ponsetti at Still in Press in the, uh, the uh, uh, Archives of General Psychiatry, I think it is, came out with a very, very interesting study, which is better, for, uh, which is better formed and was designed specifically to see if they, uh, uh, an fMRI could separate these two groups and found that they could, I think, that with very, very few exceptions, with very few mistakes, could separate the two different groups. Uh, the problem with that study is that he used admitters rather than deniers. I, I shouldn't say problem with the study. It, everything he did actually was, uh, uh, was correct. But we can't use it clinically yet because he only used admitters. Of course, if the person admits to being a pedophile, there's no point to the brain scan. We really need to know if we can detect this in deniers, in people who are trying to avoid or not react to the stimuli at, uh, in the brain scanner. So the basic question, can an fMRI detect a, a arousal to child stimuli? If there's a take-home message, it's how gray this bar is. We often want a very solid, concrete, yes he is or no he's not kind of an answer. Yes, this test works, no it doesn't. Volumetry works or no it doesn't. Volumetric is better than circumferential or no it's not. But really all of these answers are statistical. There is no yes or no to any of them especially when it comes to medical testing, which often sets people to forget, well, it came back positive, that's that, as opposed to thinking of it in probabilities, which we're more accustomed to doing, in, uh, especially in psychology. 
So what I put up here is a series of pretty well-known medical tests going from not very accurate tests, but still quite useful clinically, sometimes as a, a screening test, going from a digital exam of the, uh, of the prostate all the way up through the HIV antibody test, which is one of the most accurate tests. So this is where philometry is, or at least volumetric philometry, the way we use it in our, uh, in our laboratory. It's not perfect, and we're always very careful never to use it as if it's perfect. It misses a substantial portion of pedophiles, and it's biased on purpose. It's biased towards not diagnosing pedophilia. So when, from our, uh, from our laboratory, if a result comes out pedophilic, that's a solid result. We will only diagnose pedophilia if, uh, if the person uh, responds much more to the pedophilic stimuli than to the stimuli uh, representing adults. This was the amygdala study. It did better than chance, but not really uh, uh, at the point where anybody would use it for a clinical purpose. And then this was the uh, very recent Ponsetti study, uh, where he found very, very high sensitivity and specificity. But before I say, oh, it's up where all, where all standard medical tests are, it's not quite ready, uh, it's not quite yet ready for medical purposes. Nor is it necessarily better than philometry at this point. When we gather the data on, uh, on philometry, of course, we gather the data on the deniers. Those are the people that we're, uh, that we're most uh, interested in. But the Ponsetti study so far is on admitters. So we're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. Okay. Oh. Do we have the? I, I just want to see how my time is doing. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, so overall, the features seem to suggest that there is definitely something prenatal that we can't get around. There's no way to explain the findings that we have in pedophilia without, uh, without uh, mentioning, without including biology. It's inescapable at this point. We can't rule out psychosocial influences, but we cannot have a complete theory that's not able to explain these non-obvious but exquisitely important biological findings. Now, the pedophilic brain structure does indeed seem to be different from the non-pedophilic brain structure. We're not exactly sure where yet, and we're not exactly sure how yet, and the differences are slight. We can pick them up when we have large groups to sample, but we can't see it on an, indivi on an individual brain scan. Now, the brain differences that we're seeing are not consistent with the, what we see that, is, uh, that we're able to change, either with, uh, with drugs, with learning, with experience. It's become known, and a lot of people do correctly point out, that, oh, the brain is not as static as it used to be. That's exactly true. Brain cells can reproduce. We used to think that they could not. But the parts of the brain that can change and the areas where cells do divide is in a very specific, very small area in the hippocampus. It's not in the enormous areas of the brain that we found that are related to pedophilia or at least that my group found were related to pedophilia, nor is it related to the, uh, to the areas of the brain that, uh, the two German groups, uh, that one of the German groups studied, the temporal lobe theorist that is where that, that, that set of cells works. We can also now say that pedophiles respond basically in the same way that non-pedophiles respond. It's the same areas of the brain, the areas of the brain that are ultimately responsible for sexual interest. But they respond to stimuli depicting children rather than to the stimuli depicting adults. So to return to our questions, it, uh, to the big questions, is it in the brain? That's pretty undeniable. Something is, uh, is in the brain. 
We don't know any of the details yet, but it, uh, we can't get away from the idea that pedophilia is something about the brain. Can we treat it? Again, the basic question for, well, it's in the brain, often gives us the idea that, well, therefore, we can't treat it. Things in the brain can't be treated. Now, we have to remember the very, very important distinction that often still gets confused between pedophilia and child molestation. Just because we can't change the person's sexual interests doesn't mean that we can't help them change their behavior. So when somebody says, oh, if you can't treat it, you can't do anything, no, that's not what this implies. It implies that I need to do things to help the person. I need to treat the situation the person's in and the life they have. That often, necessarily, if I can't change the brain, I have to help them live with it. I have to help them acknowledge it and deal with it. Sometimes that's a matter of a, a sex drive reducing meds to take the edge off. For some people, that's a matter of keeping themselves out of harm's way. But the question, can we treat it, uh, we've now slipped between just because we don't think at this point, the brain data don't suggest that we can uh, change pedophilia, doesn't mean that it can't change a person's propensity to offend, which is actually what we're after. Is it in the genes? Although we don't really have time to talk about it today, there's really only been one genetic study. Now, doing genetic studies requires absolutely enormous samples. The only thing with more, point, uh, the only thing with more data points than the brain is DNA. And so it takes very, very large samples in order to run those studies. And you also need the families and their DNA. That's not going to happen. A lot of the families have, of course, by then dissociated from the offender, certainly uh, very often their own children, especially for incest offenders. So there hasn't been a lot of work on that. Uh, there's been one study uh, that showed that it did seem to run in families. That doesn't necessarily mean it's genetic but there was something going on that seems to run in families. Uh, an example of something that's non-genetic would be, uh, for example, in a uh, family that's very poor. They share an environment from generation to generation, in addition to sharing the genes from generation to generation. So just because it runs in families, which it does seem to, doesn't mean that it's genetic. Uh, were they born with it? There's re uh, some of the findings suggest that there's no way, there's no way to explain handedness, and it's a little difficult to, uh, to explain uh, 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 overall height without going back to prenatal uh, biology. We don't know what it is, and we don't even know if it's necessarily destiny before birth. All we know, all we really know, is that the brain was different before birth. We got this basically from handedness, is what said, whatever the chain of events is, the chain begins before birth. We, there, there's an old uh, famous saying in, uh, in brain development. The, uh, the earlier you catch it, the harder it, uh, the earlier you catch it, the harder it, it well, I hate when bad things happen to good sentences. <laughs> Early in a disease, the harder it is to detect, but the easier it is to treat. Later in development, the easier it is to detect, but the harder it is to treat. So if we can find whatever is going on at the beginning of the chain, we might, at the beginning of the chain might just be general vulnerability. It might not be specifically pedophilia, and we're just finding somebody with a brain that's trying to compensate for something that went wrong. Maybe it was uh, the mother was exposed to some virus while she was pregnant. Perhaps it was poor prenatal care, vitamin deficiencies, poor nutrition. 
any of those things could develop a vulnerable brain and then something else in addition happens over the course of life to put the person on a course towards pedophilia. So we don't yet know how the whole pipeline works, but the pipe begins apparently in the womb. So are they uh, uh, responsible for it? Again, we have to make our division between pedophilia and child molestation. They don't seem to be responsible for what they're attracted to any more than anybody is responsible for what they're attracted to. But there was nothing in the findings that suggests that they're not responsible for their behavior. There were no differences in the frontal parts of the brain, which are predominantly the areas that are responsible for self-control, and is, which is what led the frontal, uh, frontal lobe theorists to, uh, to start supporting the frontal lobe theories to begin with. So at least the evidence from my lab and from one of the German teams is that that's not there. The people apparently are not responsible for their sexual attractions, but remain entirely responsible, as far as we can see at the moment, for their actual behavior. Which then brings us to probably the most important question. Can we prevent it? Which to me is the most exciting prospect. The more we can pinpoint where in development the thing went wrong, if it's vitamin deficiencies, we can do something about that will not be able to prevent every single case, but if we know what kind of an environment makes pedophilia more likely or less likely, then we can start manipulating the environment long before any of the offenses ever occur. Now, whenever I talk about brain studies in the public, I seem to get this kind of a reaction. For those of you under 40, five, this was a famous Kubrick film from the, uh, from the early 70s, I, uh, I guess it was. Essentially, it's uh, touted out as, a, as an example of scientists gone wrong, uh, strongly manipulating and uh, putting unwilling people into uh, forcible treatment in, uh, uh, environments. This particular one actually was... Uh, that kind of hinted towards the brain, but really it was uh, all about behaviorism, which was the rage uh, uh, at the time. Uh, now, the public often fears the scientists somehow, but really, it's kind of the other way around. For those of you older than 110, uh, these were the Frankenstein villagers charging the castle. Now and then I get that. Where's the, uh-oh, you people with phalometries, you're you know, hooking people up to electrodes, somebody got the idea. Uh, and somebody starts becoming, uh-oh, we're talking to the brain, you're going to be manipulating the brain, who are you to decide what's a healthy brain versus a not healthy brain? And there's a great deal of hysteria over it. There's something about the brain that feels more, it's, the brain is our heart. It feels it's more like us, and the more we discover it, people kind of feel, pardon the pun, naked about it, and that they're worried about governments, scientists, it's always men in the white coats, it's never a woman in the white coat, manipulating brain development, which people often take as, you know, uh, ethically alarming. But really, when you think about it, the basic medical ethics we already have in place already covered this. We're not getting rid of confidentiality, we're not getting rid of informed consent, Nobody ever will get, uh, nobody is forced to take a phallometric uh, exam, although sometimes the lawyers get involved and there are legal implications of saying yes or saying no. But there's nothing in anything that we're learning or anything that's implied by what we're learning that changes anybody's rights to, uh, to their treatment or their right to refuse treatment. Now, 
my hope, of course, is that as we go on, we're going to pinpoint more precisely the exact place where things start to go off. And then we might have the greatest opportunity to change it. It could be something, as I said, like vitamin deficiencies, poor nutrition, some general health factor during the development of the fetus. The better we can find out what that is, the better we can prevent the whole thing from developing in the first place. Which to me is probably the most exciting prospect about doing any of the brain research. Almost all of the research we do is about, of course, preventing recidivism, which makes perfect sense. Once we know who this, uh, once an, uh, an offender is apprehended, incarcerated, released, and then is ready for rehabilitation and reintegration into the community, uh, we need to know how, how well that works. But if the brain research is successful, instead of presenting the second offense, we can prevent the first offense which would be extremely, extremely exciting. Nobody can make any promises about, you know, this, we're going to have this in 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is. But there are only three teams in the world doing this. When I need, uh, people keep uh, wondering, oh, you need more grant money. No, I need more competitors. There need to be other scientists and other labs looking at this in other different ways. We need to be training more students for it. Now, uh, the comparison I often like to make is uh, the brain study, the largest of the brain studies, the one that my group did, again, cost the same amount of money as one person in prison. This is cheap and has probably the greatest potential for making the greatest effect, not by preventing reoffending, but by preventing offending. Uh, so I just wanted to, uh, to close on one of my favorite quotes, and I just tripped over it uh, uh, recently. Uh, Magnus Hirschfeld, which is, uh, who was also one of the, uh, uh, the initial uh, sex researchers, he said it in German, but justice through science, which is probably the most exciting prospect that, that, that any of us has. And I would also like to acknowledge, they talk about it takes a village, brain research takes a village. Neurologists, psychologists, uh, uh, statisticians, neuroscience people, sexologists, no one person will ever have the expertise to do these kinds of studies. It takes a whole mess of us. And uh, with that, I hope that kind of allayed people's fears, helped caught you up. I hope I minimized the, the Latin and the Greek a bit. And if you have any questions, uh, I'm always available on, uh, on email, and I'll have, uh, uh, I'd be happy to talk to anybody for the, uh, for the rest of the weekend. Have a great conference, and thank you for your attention. So I really hope you enjoyed James's, James's talk there. It was a very good keynote uh, a couple of years ago at, uh, at a conference on this area. But he speaks about this exact concept, that the brain can develop in a way that has a proclivity or an interest in something that the conscious self is not, does not want, right? And so the conscious self is, is fighting to prevent them from doing what the brain wants them to do. Think about that. Think about that as a duality, right? One of the, one of the quotes that always comes to mind when I think about that is there's an old um, IRA quote. And so the IRA were the, the Irish Republican Army, uh, a faction of terrorists in, 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 in Northern Ireland operating for independence from England. And one of their famous quotes was, you know, you need to be lucky 99, uh, you need to be lucky 99 times. We only have to be lucky once. And it was saying basically, you know, counter-terrorism, has to stop, can stop 99 terrorist attacks. But it doesn't matter if they miss, it, it, none of it matters if they miss one. Whereas a terrorist group only has to get lucky one time. 
And it's almost like that with these kind of, you know, these brain people dualities. If you can control the brain 99 times, but you only have to not be able to control the brain once to do something that is criminal, harmful, abhorrent, and, and you know, puts you in prison. And it's a really interesting way of thinking about this immense uphill battle then that the cognitive conscious mind has to put up with. And what I'm going to show you next, just to finish off this lecture, is the real world manifestation of what James Cantor was talking about. And it's this kind of this, this group that doesn't get a lot of attention because, you know, it's quite a, a, a shocking and, and, and dark topic to, to, to be talking about. But, but this group called non-offending paedophiles, who are these people who, who realise that their brains have an interest that they don't want. And it's their effort almost to live with and control these impulses and urges that their brain is creating from these kind of faulty connections that James Cantor has walked us through. So for the last eight minutes of this class, I just want you to have a look at this video and, and kind of think about that. And, 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 and just, just reflect on the duality or the potential duality that can exist between the brain and the person. And then how we handle that in a, in a forensic sense, in a psychological sense and in a legal sense. Because in Thursday's lecture... We're going to be jumping into another live case debate where we do exactly this. We put the brain against the person and we have to work out which one is to blame for the behaviour. And I know what the answer is going to be. It's complicated. It's a bit of both. In law, not that complicated. We're going to have to blame one or the other. So we'll do it on Thursday. So with the last few minutes, enjoy this Vice documentary. It's very, very good. I hope you enjoy it. And I'll be seeing you on Thursday for the last live debate. I'm excited. Have a great week. I wish people understood that, I mean, we generally don't like the fact that there are pedophiles either. Like, we didn't ask for this. It's something that a lot of people will be more comfortable ignoring, but when it's you, it's not really an option to ignore it. This is David. He's known as a non-offending pedophile, someone who has a romantic and sexual attraction to kids, but says he's never abused a child. He wants help, but getting it in the U.S. is risky. When I was figuring this stuff out about myself, I decided that I couldn't tell anybody because I was pretty certain that at best they would like desert me and just like I'd lose a friend or whatever, and at worst, like they'd tell absolutely everybody, and I'd be like, "It'd be dangerous for you." It, it would be dangerous. We've never thought about non-offending pedophiles. We focused all of our resources on after-the-fact interventions. How do we punish? How do we surveil? How do we keep track of sex offenders? What we need are interventions that can target the vast majority of sex crimes that can be prevented. Dr. Letourneau is one of few researchers in the U.S. focusing on preventive measures to help pedophiles. But getting them treatment is tough. Mandatory reporting laws in America require that therapists alert authorities when they suspect a pedophile is at risk of abusing a child. If you are someone that has an attraction and you go to a therapist and you say, I have these attractions for young people, what could happen? Any number of things could happen. Even if you've never offended, if you're sexually interested in children, you reach out to a therapist for help, they may decide that you still represent a threat and that their concerns meet the threshold for a mandatory report. I know of a child who's at the age of 15, 
disclosed to a school guidance counselor that he had sexual interest in young children and he wanted some help and support around that. He got kicked out of school and they assumed, as many people do assume, that someone with sexual interest in children, that they cannot control themselves, that they will just reach out and grab the first child they see off the street and rape that child. And that's not true. This is a PSA you're not likely to see in the U.S. Do you like children in ways you shouldn't? There is help. The campaign was produced by Prevention Project Dunkelfeld, one of the only places in the world that offers therapy to pedophiles. We do not have cis mandatory port laws as you have in the United States. Yes. This is an obstacle for prevention work because nobody would show up. Since 2005, about 10,000 people in Germany have reached out to Dunkelfeld for help. Is this like conversion therapy? Are you trying to cure these people? No, it's not possible to change sexual orientation. I never would try that. So are you saying that pedophilia is a sexual orientation? Exactly. We have a lot of sexual minorities, and this is all part of this huge variety. So nobody chooses this. And as long as he not would act out, it would be very, very inhuman to judge such a person. And I would always vote to integrate him in society. Dr. Bayer estimates that 1% of the population is pedophilically inclined. And nearly all of them are men. But not all of them offend. Dunkelfels treated about 1,700 since it opened. And what does this treatment look like? It's a kind of cognitive behavioral treatment running to all the risky situations. And then we will train him to change his behavior in these situations. The other one would be pharmaceutical options. We can lower sexual urges with very effective drugs. So if it's... Is that like chemical castration? It's like chemical castration, yeah. How many people have gone through this program? and have not offended? Nearly all of them. How do you measure that? By just uh, giving the, um, taking the answers of them. It's subject. Oh, so they tell you? Yes. Doctor, is that, is that, if you're just relying on them to tell you that they didn't act out as the only measurement of success for this program, yeah. is that enough? As long as we do not have any other measurements and we are working on this, Do you feel like you were born this way? Basically, yes. Just imagine to feel whatever you may feel for women or men, to feel that romance and sexual attraction just not to adults, but to kids. Ooh. Max, that's, that's tough, man. That's... I know, I know. When, when did you realize that you were attracted to kids? It was around 20. It kind of shattered my whole um, self-image. I didn't know at that point that there was a way out. 
In 2006, Max went to Dunkelfell for a year of treatment. Is there something you tell yourself when you see a young girl that you're attracted to? In therapy, I learned some strategies to make myself realize that what I'm feeling is very different from what the girl is feeling. I've arrived in my development at the point where I feel mostly completely normal about kids like other people would. I obviously still have the attraction, but it's on the background. Do you think you deserve the same rights as adults who are attracted to adults? If you exclude having sex with kids, yes. So you should be able to live where you want to live and work where you want to work, even if it's at a preschool or elementary school? Basically, yes. Because everything else would um, constitute something like uh, thought control. What does destigmatization look like? If I'm pedophilically inclined, and you will come over and will say to me, listen, please take care of my five-year-old son. And I would say, no, I'm pedophilically inclined. And if you would judge this in the same way as you would judge the drug, drug addict, then that would be a sign of destigmatization. That's the, that's the world you want to live in? Yes. You got a tough job, Doc. Yes, correct. Losing my mind